0: This is an RNZ podcast.
1: This is Media Watch. I'm Colin Peacock. Six months after the ugly extremism on show at Parliament's occupation, there's a new and vivid investigation into the misinformation that
2: fueled it. This is the language of people who say we're all victims and perpetrators of a deep state propaganda machine. But actually, could it be they are the true propagandists?
1: But the makers of that documentary decided not to confront the people pushing the misinformation that they say has radicalised many Kiwis. So was that the right move? We look at that. Worries that those who don't really have the health of local democracy at heart might benefit.
3: This is a dangerous situation for New Zealand and the failure to recognise this will be our demise.
1: But first, how the saga of a single member of parliament preoccupied the parliamentary press pack and political pundits this past week.
3: Saturday on News Hub Nation, Sharma-geddon for the Labour Party. The latest claims of lying and a
1: caucus cover-up that could see Gaurav Sharma expelled. That was Connor Whitton trailing this weekend's News Hub Nation show featuring the so-called rogue MP making more of his claims of bullying, prime ministerial dishonesty and cover-ups in the Labour Party caucus. And this time he revealed that he'd put all that on paper to the Prime Minister's office back in December. On that show, Dr Sharma also made a claim about former staffer-turned-lobbyist and politics pundit Neil Jones, which News Hub whipped out of repeat screenings of the show. And while the Prime Minister and Whip Karen McAnulty wouldn't be interviewed on News Hub Nation, a late-breaking statement read to viewers said they'd already rejected the claims in Dr Sharma's letter. Now the so-called Sharma drama, as the media were calling it then, started in the media as well, when the MP put his grievances in a piece for the New Zealand Herald last week, but with no evidence – and this week, TBNZ's political editor Jessica much Mackay said this on the One News podcast Inside Parliament.
2: I would advise um, Gaurav Sharma to go on a, a long and reflective, perhaps multi-day hike, take in some fresh air and contemplate his future.
1: But the MP didn't take a hike. He took the mic at TBNZ's news rivals, including the AM show, where they also offered him the camera as well. Can
0: you just look into that camera for me, uh, Dr Sharma, and just tell the Prime Minister what it is you want? We've got about 15 seconds.
1: Some in the media ended up calling this a case of he said, she said, but it's a bit more like he's said plenty in the media so far, while they've said as little as possible, on the record at least. And that's left much of the media still weighing up whether serious bullying has really gone on here or just the kind of oversight and occasional coercion that's part and parcel of politics in a party in government. But in a 36-minute interview with NewsHub's Hub's Jenna Lynch last Thursday, there was something of specific interest to the news media.
2: The explosive claim. He says the MP intake of 2020 was recently required to attend a workshop ahead of election year where they were coached on how to keep information out of the public's hands.
3: One of them was obviously, you know, shut up, don't talk about anything, uh, because we hadn't, not about this, but anything, you know, don't say anything for which the prime minister has to stand up and do a media stand up. Uh, But also how not to uh, get an OIA issue. So how to talk to somebody without actually having any track record of it so nobody can track it down the road. Now, ministries, ministers,
1: and public servants frustrating legitimate requests for official information has been a long-standing grievance of our journalists. And while News Talk ZB's Mike Hosking says he's not a journalist, he was also uptight about that the following morning on Friday. It's astonishing to the extent that if it's true, it shows the true Machiavellian and dishonest nature of this government, or. Not remotely surprising given some of us have been saying this for some time now. And outside of the media, the man who monitors compliance with the law also responded. Please explain, Prime Minister. NewsHub can reveal the Chief Ombudsman has written to the Prime Minister seeking assurances her government understands its transparency obligation. Well, journalists and editors around the country will be waiting on that explanation as well. Now on News Hub Nation this weekend, Dr Sherma was followed by the Minister of Disarmament, who was asked this question.
2: Have you ever had a conversation about avoiding the OAA by not putting things in writing?
1: Uh, the only conversations I've had have been about actually meeting the spirit and the letter of the OIA. So.
2: All right, Um, let's move on to nuclear weapons.
1: And the reason that Phil Twyford was on that show was the not-so-small matter of the elevated risk of nuclear war right now. And in her earlier extensive interview, Jenna Lynch told the rogue MP for Hamilton West he'd already started one.
2: Doing what you've done today, you've essentially hit the nuclear button. Do you think you're going to regret this?
1: No, why should I regret it? Well, a bit of hyperbole there, obviously, with both parties still really at a kind of standoff stage. But the Sherman missile crisis could be settled one way or another next Tuesday when Labour's caucus considers expelling the MP if he's still in a rogue state of mind. Also on that News Hub Nation show this weekend, Auckland University politics lecturer Dr Lara Greaves said the whole episode had a side to it that went beyond party politics
0: because actually what a lot of this is doing is fueling the other big story of the week, the disinformation, misinformation, Mm. and that whole vacuum in our democracy, because it's just actually giving a lot of material for those people that say politics are corrupt, the Prime Minister's a liar, all of that kind of thing. We're just giving more material to that.
1: And Dr Greaves wasn't the only one this past week picking up on the impact that the undercurrent of misinformation is having in politics these days at a number of levels. Principals warn the election of trustees who have conspiracy-driven views will be devastating for
0: schools. They're worried about the number of people standing for school boards who are opposed to measures aimed at minimising the spread of COVID-19, such as face masks and vaccinations. That
1: was Corin Dan on RNZ's morning report last Thursday, reporting the Principal's Federation's concern about some school board nominees involved in COVID misinformation. And as if to prove that the problem is that just about anyone is eligible, notorious white supremacist Philip Arps put up his hand to be a trustee of Te Aratai College in Linwood in Christchurch.
2: The Federation of Islamic Associations of New Zealand says it's the latest in a growing trend of far-right extremists trying to use elected boards as a platform for hate.
1: Philip Harp served 21 months for sharing footage of the March 15 terror attack and is banned from the mosque in Linwood, which was of course attacked by another white supremacist on that day back in 2019. And him seeking to have a say at a local school is a clear provocation. But Lorraine Kerr of the School Trustees Association told RNZ that schools just have to trust in the democratic process.
0: It is what it is. And I guess where there are some concerns, the democracy process kicks in. And that's when everyone, every member of the community votes. And you have to rely on the community and the sensibleness
1: of their choice. Now sensible local parents are extremely unlikely to elect an extremist to govern their kid's school, but recent reports of positions uncontested in some places because of a lack of candidates makes it much more likely that some with fringe views could get through as well as in local government and in schools. And last Tuesday, RNZ's The Panel picked up on how some fringe groups had picked up on that.
3: Yesterday, we discussed the issue of an anti-mandate, anti-vax group standing candidates in local body elections to, quote-unquote, sway the results and throw our weight around. The group uh, Voices for Freedom wanted to make the country ungovernable, unquote. Now, that has been part of a wider expose by Lewis Cleve and Paula Penfold for Stuff.
1: That wider expose Wallace Chapman mentioned there was fire and fury, all about misinformation fuelling the occupation of Parliament earlier this year and since, and we'll have more on that later in this programme. But last Monday, they reported that anti-vaccination group Voices for Freedom had told prospective local body candidates to hide their affiliations to the group. In newsletters and emails seen by Media Watch, Voices for Freedom does indeed tell its supporters putting their names forward that they could expect support from other Voices for Freedom members locally. And they said getting six to $9,000 a year for a dozen or so meetings sounds like a pretty good deal to us. On RNZ's The Panel, business consultant and podcaster Simon Pound reacted like this. You just kind of hope that if you ignore these people, they'll go away. Maybe they'll just blow themselves out like, you know, a summer storm. But not minded to just ignore them was the lobby group FACT, Fight Against Conspiracy Theories Aotearoa, which is now pulling together a kind of register of candidates with undeclared anti-vax views or affiliations. And FACT's Stephen Judd told the panel last Tuesday, screening candidates' backgrounds really ought to be the media's job. I don't think that really should be the domain of public officials to do that. That's really the domain of the media and civil society organisations and I think what we're partly seeing is a consequence of how stretched news media are. And some are now doing this. The capital's daily paper, The Dominion Post, for example, says it's asked all mayoral candidates in Wellington if they belong to Voices for Freedom. Now, under the headline, The COVID-19 Conspiracy Theorists Targeting Northland's Local Elections, Stuff's Andrea Vance said a group of eight candidates is running for office there, espousing conspiracy theories and COVID-19 disinformation under the banner of Sovereign. But in some places, there's very little local reporting and maybe no local paper at all. Local radio, where it exists, doesn't really do local politics anymore in most places. Indeed, many people around the country will end up better informed about the personalities contesting the job of Mayor of Auckland rather than the contest in their own backyard. Now there's certainly nothing new about people with fringe views serving in local government or even national government for that matter. And in a democracy, most people should have a shot without officials or even the media deciding on their suitability. And most of the time, fringe candidates don't win anyway. But this week, the media were definitely worried about the possibility. This is the introduction of a cancer that is going to metastasize. There is no if and or but about it. Dr. Sanjana Hatatua from the Disinformation Project telling Dunedin based Big Hair News last week that local body disinformation candidates could be cancerous. Now, that comment was repeated by the Otago Daily Times in an article identifying current local politicians with fringe group affiliations. And Dr. Hatatua also told the ODT that this would definitely have an impact on national politics too before long. And when discussing Brian Tamaki's recent claims of an umbrella movement of four fringe parties, planned for 2023, former Labour Party staffer Lamia Imam said this on 9 to Noon last week.
2: It would behoove us to take these
3: guys seriously and what it will mean for our democracy. Um, You know, I think we've seen what they're capable of doing in terms of shutting our capital down. Maybe not right now in August, but at some stage we will have to wake up and, and sort of address this. This is a dangerous situation for New Zealand and the failure to recognise this will be our demise.
1: Now that echoed a warning from right-leaning pundit Matthew Hooten in the New Zealand Herald recently and on the AM show this week, he said this. And the reason I wrote about this in the New Zealand Herald is it's not impossible that they'd do like a Jim Anderton and they'd come together in Mm. some form of alliance that they would
0: get into Parliament. And it's something which I think the big parties and the establishment and everybody needs to think about. Just you know, Not number one issue, but an issue coming up to the election. What would we do uh, if that happened? And how do the big parties try to avoid this movement growing?
1: Matthew Hooton went as far as to say that major political parties might need to now think about a grand coalition to keep the fringe ones at bay. And even outside of the outcomes of national and local elections, the powers that be might already be factoring in the risks of people with extreme views in other ways. For example... So they reckon these things are three times better than fixed or mobile cameras. It says very interestingly here, they could be used to penalise things like tailgating, not wearing your seatbelt, using an emergency lane, mobile phone use. It says then, for these cameras can see inside the passenger compartment... And that's got privacy issues with it which they're working through and it also indicates there's going to need to be a law change around it to use the cameras for that. That was RNZ's Phil Pennington on Morning Report last Monday describing newer, smarter speed cameras which could be ready to roll out next year and which could catch a range of offences, not just speeding. But not all drivers will approve of more rules and more enforcement on the roads. And on Morning Report, Phil Pennington was surprised by something else he discovered using the Official Information Act. They are undoubtedly coming, but they won't say how many. They say uh, that and the cost of them is something they won't tell us. They say, interestingly enough, that's in order to protect ministers, members of organisations, officers and employees from improper pressure or harassment first time i've seen that in an oia i think and it might not be the last time that government and the public service has to take such steps to shield people from harassment a sign of the times there and one the media seem to be wising up to These days, some people are prepared to aggressively assert what they believe to be their fundamental rights and freedoms. And as we saw in the occupation of Parliament earlier this year, some people are prepared to break laws and break things to do that. And some at the time even called for the ejection, even execution, of those they hold responsible. And as Hayden Donnell now reports, some of them have had a big presence in our news media so far this year. It is this group I've come to talk to. In particular,
2: the three women who set up Voices for Freedom.
1: You guys started
0: it, yeah? yeah the yeah, three, three of you? Months. Three mums.
3: That's Newsroom's Melanie Reid speaking to the founders of the anti-vax group Voices for Freedom, Alia Bland, Claire Deeks and Libby Johnson. The video feature was part of a wave of press Voices for Freedom and its allies have attracted in recent months. Nurses for Freedom, a group founded by Voices for Freedom local coordinator Deborah Cunliffe, featured recently on 3's The Project, where Cunliffe had this to say.
2: And healthcare clearly matters to the people of New Zealand. Our nurses want to help.
3: That altruistic posture jars a little with calls in the Nurses for Freedom group on the messaging service Telegram for Nuremberg 2.0 to be carried out on public figures who have backed vaccination and COVID health measures. At the end of that interview, presenter Mark Richardson pointed out that the healthcare workers in question could get their jobs back with just one simple step. Get the jab. And go back. I don't care what your rationale is behind. Your country's saying we need you. So go and do something. It was like me fielding under the helmet. I I didn't want to do it, but I did it for the good of the country.
0: Right. Right. thanks.
3: Other coverage has been more sympathetic to the anti-mandate cause. A story by Evan Harding and Stuff's Southland Times cast an uncritical eye over Nurses for Freedom's claim to represent 700 nurses just waiting to return to work. According to figures from the Ministry of Health, only around 500 nurses have been suspended for failing to meet COVID vaccine requirements. Stuff's article has since been removed, replaced by a message saying it failed to meet the company's editorial standards. And another article by Harding on Vaccinations has received the same treatment. Stuff wasn't the only news organisation to pull a story after giving an uncritical platform to an anti-vaxxer. Last month, the Herald carried an article by the Northern Advocate about Brad Flutie, who was protesting the closure of the Marsden Point refinery. The story didn't mention that Flutie is an anti-vaxxer who called for Parliament protesters to shift their focus to Marsden Point as a way of retaining momentum after their occupation was broken up, nor that he has repeatedly called to overthrow the government and face charges for refusing to comply with COVID restrictions and wear a mask while shopping in January. After receiving criticism, the Herald took the article down and later replaced it with a rewritten version headlined, Marsden Point Oil Refinery Protest Passes 100 Day Milestone in Northland – Take Two. While some organisations seem to have elevated these figures either by accident or in contravention of their own editorial standards, broadcaster Sean Plunkett's platform The Platform has platformed a succession of anti-vaxxers on purpose. Yesterday presenter Michael Laws talked to Counterspin Media host Calvin Alp, who once told Act leader David Seymour he was lucky protesters at the Parliament occupation hadn't strung him up from the nearest lamppost. An association with intolerance doesn't appear to be a deal-breaker for the platform, which has the tagline, Open, Tolerant, Free. The station has also aired long interviews with leaders of groups like Voices for Freedom and NZ Doctors Speak Out with Science in recent months, some of them not exactly unbiased. This is the platform host Rodney Hyde putting his cards on the table before an interview with Alia Bland. And I am a very, very, very proud member of Voices for Freedom, so this is my disclosure. I'm not actually having
1: someone along that I am um, neutral about. I am a fan of Voices for Freedom. I have met Alia <laughs> and uh, her colleagues. I have never been as impressed
0: by a group of women.
3: After his interview with the well-known Facebook anti-vaxxer Chantal Baker, Plunkett was so moved that he even offered her a job. Do you want a weekly show on the platform?
2: well possibly let's have a conversation about it let's
3: have a conversation about that i would be happy to have you on board on the strength of i think the open conversation we have had today now the reason plunkett was making that offer and even interviewing baker in the first place is because she had just featured in a documentary which painted her and other leading anti-vax figures in a less than flattering light Fire and Fury by Stuff Circuit came out on Sunday and features clips like this, taken from conspiracy and anti-vax groups on platforms like Telegram.
0: Gotta love that sound of execution. It's gonna happen. Media in this country need burning. They really seriously need burning.
2: This is the language of people who say we're all victims and perpetrators of a deep state propaganda machine. But actually, could it be they are the true propagandists?
3: The doco shows a darker side to Voices for Freedom. Far from being just in the words of that newsroom video, the project of three mums, Fire and Fury portrays a group which puts up an approachable folksy front to draw people into a more radical and potentially violent agenda.
2: If a Voices for Freedom link to fascism seems unlikely, it's not to fascists. Stuff Circuit has seen transcripts of messages between former National Front leader Kyle Chapman and others, about potential political leadership. They identified the dark-haired lady from Voices for Freedom as a prospective leader.
3: I asked the documentary's host Paula Penfold whether these fringe figures have had an easy ride from some parts of the media and why she decided to shine a light on what goes on in the shadier corners of the internet.
2: Watching From Auckland, the events play out during the Wellington protest and you know the daily news media was doing an excellent job of it. But we started to see conversation in social media about uh the idea of the term of making the country ungovernable it was the use of that word that made us sit up and take notice about what uh was meant by that and whether as a long-form video investigative unit there might be something that we could add to the media uh coverage that was already playing out there were many 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 editorial conversations about how we should do that
3: Yeah, right at the start of the doco, you say that you've taken advice about how to cover this topic without doing harm. So can you say where
2: that advice came from and what it said? So we took advice from groups who have been following the far right in New Zealand and they directed us to many journalistic resources about how to cover this issue without replatforming these dangerous ideas the main resource was a report called uh, the oxygen of amplification which came out uh, in 2017 in the states uh, written by data and society it's an incredible resource for journalists and we drew most of our most of our guidelines about how we should do this from that report and it was really useful uh, to give us a structure really and a almost a checklist for going through what we wanted to cover in the documentary and uh, what we should and shouldn't do, and also to insert things that we were advised would be useful to counter the hate that we were reporting.
3: The main decision that you made that I think has been the most controversial was that you didn't interview a lot of the people at the centre or any of the people at the centre of this documentary, Mm -hmm. really. So you didn't interview Calvin Alp, Amy Benjamin, Voices for Freedom, Damien Dement, these people... They've obviously seized on that, uh, said that you're scared to platform them or that it was unfair. Why did
2: you make that decision? Because they've had their say. They have so many hundreds, thousands probably, of hours of material on the internet already. And also part of the advice that we took, the guidelines that we were reading, uh, said that it's dangerous to give them a platform that's equal to the hate that they're already disseminating. And so this is not your ordinary right of reply situation. In a way, it's like we were giving our audience the right of reply to what had already been said. It's interesting, though, because it is a
3: change of approach for you when it comes to conspiracists. You covered Billy Takahika
2: and you sat down with him. I mean, with Billy Takahika, we did sit down and we did an interview, but we didn't let him platform any of his conspiracy theory views. That was an important distinction. We were challenging him on things that he had said and things that he had done and misrepresented in his career in this instance we 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 just didn't want to give them an opportunity to revoice the conspiracies that they already have voiced and so sitting down and giving them an interview and the and the opportunity for a right of reply risked uh, platforming their dangerous speech and we simply didn't think it was responsible to do that
3: do you think that there's also this danger that maybe the media can be bamboozled by this these people if They haven't really truly researched what they're saying in private and on the internet and on their telegram and that sort of stuff where they can kind of sit down with a journalist like you and present a pretty reasonable front. I'm thinking particularly of Voices for Freedom uh, and that can draw people into, I guess, increasingly radical ideas.
2: They mostly don't engage with the media anyway. I mean, it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if we had sent them an invitation for an interview. I suspect they probably would have declined. They usually do. But yes, they're sophisticated operators and media journalists need to be really on guard for precisely what it is that they're, that is behind the messages that they're giving you, whether it's accurate, whether the people that they're fronting are, are credible and whether their views are dangerous and if they...
3: You keep saying that we're dangerous and I guess some people might be asking, you know, what could they be saying that's so dangerous or what could they be doing that is so dangerous? Now, can you just elaborate on why you believe they're so dangerous?
2: But it's dangerous because the way that many of these groups and people have brought people into their conversations, which are happening in dangerous places like Telegram, and they've brought them in through the pandemic on the basis of kind of vaccine hesitancy or concern about mandates or concern about the pandemic response. And even within that conversation, the amount of disinformation is absolutely incredible. And it's interesting when you put out a piece of work like this, the response that you get is uh, huge from these followers. But they all send you exactly the same links to the same pieces of research, which, it, you know it takes less than a minute to actually fact check that stuff and find out that it's, you know, disinformation, but they obviously don't do that. The the danger lies in the fact that people are brought in on the basis of concern about vaccine hesitancy, and they're very quickly taken down a path to concerning stuff. I mean, we explained in the documentary how Alia Bland, for instance, from Voices for Freedom, was posting links to documentaries on her Facebook page, which were about the capital riots, which were in support of the insurrectionists. You know, it's not just vaccine hesitancy that we're talking about here.
3: <laughs> How do you think the media has handled these groups and covering these groups?
2: Where it has fallen down occasionally is where some of these groups have managed to get some mainstream media coverage. And it exposes, I think, a vulnerability in newsrooms. And it also exposes, or should be, educative about how sophisticated um, they are as manipulators in terms of trying to get their agenda out there. You know, and the wider conversation, of course, is about social media and algorithms and how quickly that sucking down the rabbit hole can happen. The wide spectrum of people to whom it can happen, maybe we might be able to prevent some people from falling into it. The difficulty, of course, as we learned when we interviewed protesters, is that they don't watch mainstream media or listen to or read mainstream media because they've been told not to.
3: So One Media Outlet, the platform, has taken a very different approach to this. It's been quite happy to interview Chantal Baker, even people like Calvin Elp. What do you think of that approach?
2: He tries to maintain that our journalism at Stuff Circuit is compromised because we're funded by New Zealand On Air through the Public Interest Journalism Fund. And that's a, you know, that's a message that that direct message is one that is spread by these conspiracists by these very groups that we've studied. And, it, you know, it works to a degree because they actually do believe that, you know, we get scripted advice for what to put in our stories from the government. I mean, I don't think I need to tell your audience that that doesn't happen, that that, the, that our editorial independence has remained intact and always will. I don't know whether interviews is the word, but I've seen some of the pieces that has, have been run on that platform uh, on Facebook and they're getting a lot of engagement and people are saying things like, these are the hard questions that journalists should be asking. I mean, it would be laughable if it weren't so dangerous.
3: And it's come with a lot of abuse that's now been directed your way, obviously.
2: You know, we knew that we'd get abused for this documentary, but we didn't quite uh, anticipate that it would be at the scale that has arrived. I feel really sad that, you know, the security training that we had as journalists before we'd go to places like Afghanistan was actually more useful in Wellington than it was in Afghanistan. It it, it does chill voices, this kind of criticism and abuse. It does chill voices. But that was the point of doing this story, to show that the incitement of violence is happening. It's something that we need to be aware of and we need to do whatever we can to address it.
3: That was Paula Penfold, host of Fire and Fury, which is out now on the Stuff website and its on-demand TV service, Play Stuff. The question of whether to cover the extreme right and how to do it if they do has been a vexed one in the media as conspiracy movements have grown noisier and more influential in recent years. In a recent column for The Herald, Matthew Hooten warned of a, quote, monstrosity emerging on the right and concluded with this conundrum for the media. Is it best to ignore these extremist movements for fear of giving them a platform?
1: Or is it more important than ever to bring to public attention the true nature
3: of their agenda? Disinformation researcher Byron C. Clarke has looked at that issue in a paper on the media's coverage of the Parliament occupation for the Pacific Journalism Review. He talked to me about fire and fury and where other attempts to cover the anti-vax extreme right have fallen down. Kia ora Byron, welcome to Media Watch. Kia Big journalism news in your field. What did you think of Fire and Fury?
0: I thought it was a, a really excellent documentary, and I think it really gave some of the in-depth coverage to the emerging sort of extremist movement in this country that we've seen a little bit of coverage of, but nothing quite this in-depth before before the documentary came out.
3: They agonised over this question, and it's something that lots of people do ask themselves. Does it give it oxygen to give it this coverage? these
0: groups that they were covering, people like Counterspin Media and Chantal Baker and and so forth, they already have a platform. They're already reaching a lot of people. And they're doing that, you know, without very much of a a pushback. I think rather than giving them more oxygen by covering them in in news articles or in a documentary like this, um, it's providing some of that balance that's lacking from their own media channels um, because they're putting their views forward without any any questioning or criticism of them and so it's really more of a restoring balance to some of these ideas rather than giving these ideas oxygen
3: yeah one choice that they made they didn't interview some of the central figures in the documentary amy benjamin uh, calvin alp some of the people from voices for freedom do you think that mm. was the right choice
0: We already know what these people think and what they believe. They've put it out on their own channels. And the the documentary used some clips from that. So there was no need to go and um, give them a further platform by by interviewing them.
3: The platform, Sean Plunkett's platform, The Platform, has obviously Mm -hmm. taken a different approach. And it's hosted a lot of these people. They've framed it as giving them a right of reply to the documentary. Now, what do you think of that approach? Is there anything wrong with giving these people a right of reply and being able to speak like this?
0: The whole idea behind uh, the platform seems to be that if a if a group or an individual is is deplatformed and not not given a platform in the media, that they must be saying something is worth hearing and it's in the public interest to he- to hear what they're saying. I don't think that's really really correct. I don't think somebody like Sean Plunkett, who, um, you know, is a somebody who I think of as a serious journalist, is providing a platform to people like Calvin Elp, who's calling for Um, a coup to overthrow the government, even if he is giving them a little bit of pushback in the interviews.
3: Yeah, does the calculus change though? So we've got local elections coming up and obviously Voices for Freedom and other groups have been pushing for their members to stand as candidates. Does the calculus change for the media in terms of platforming people when they become a political candidate like that? People who are
0: running for local office should be interviewed by the media should be questioned um, and journalists need to be aware as well that they may not necessarily get a honest answer to questions like that and may need to do a little more um, more investigative journalism on some of these candidates, which I think we're already starting to see, which is good. I think over the past few months, the media has been, been good at that as a result of what we saw at the protests in Wellington in, in February and March. I think prior to that, a lot of this movement had been had been a bit ignored, um, in part out of not wanting to give it oxygen, not wanting to provide a further platform. But I also think there was a idea that this was just something happening online, um, and it's easy to forget that you know when something's happening on Telegram, those those names on Telegram, those are all attached to you know real people, even if they're using a fake
3: name. You're in some of these online spaces. How did people that are in some of these conspiracy movements respond to seeing fire and fury? Did they have an are we the baddies moment or did they just reject it out of hand?
0: One of the first things that happened after the the documentary went online was that Counterspin arranged for what they called an emergency broadcast where they brought together as many people who featured in the documentary as possible to come on the show for what turned out to be a... A three-hour long live stream. Um, I'd watched that live stream and they didn't seem to have agreed on a consistent line beforehand, because they'd say one minute that this documentary was itself misinformation and they were being defamed. Um, and then the next minute they'd say, actually, the documentary is helping us, and more people will follow us and, and agree with us because of this, because they put our our ideas out there. So they've had a really mixed and confused response um i think they are hoping that they can use this to bring more people into the into the fold with with their beliefs but i think that's going to be difficult to do because it's it's put some of the more violent aspects of their beliefs right out there and that's probably for a lot of people going to be the first thing they know about um something like Counterspin is that they are calling for the overthrow the violent overthrow of the government so i think it's going to make it a bit harder for them um, there's been a little bit of talk about um, pursuing like defamation cases and things. I, I don't expect that, that will that will amount to anything because, um, as the documentary showed, it was everything
1: in their own words. It was just showing what they said. That was Byron C. Clarke, the author of The New Zealand Media and the Occupation of Parliament, a just-published analysis in the latest edition of the academic journal Pacific Journalism Review, talking there to Media Watchers, Hayden Donnell. And earlier, you heard Hayden talking to Paula Penfold, the presenter of the Stuff Circuit investigation Fire and Fury, available on the Stuff website and the on-demand service Play Stuff. That's all we have for you in Media Watch this weekend. We'll be back again, though, with more on the media at about 10.30 next Wednesday night with Midweek Media Watch talking to Karen Hay on The Lately Show and then back again with more Media Watch at the same time next weekend here on RNZ National.